Christmas is not far behind us, but we're still kind of aware of it, I think. And at Christmas time, we exchange gifts. We give and receive, and that's all part of our celebration of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the gifts come in the form of cash or a cheque. Did you ever receive what is called a blank cheque? Now, a blank cheque is not just torn out of the chequebook and nothing written on it. A blank cheque means that the sender has signed it, but has not filled in the amount of money that can be claimed in the bank on that cheque. No, I have never received a blank cheque, I must admit, and I suspect neither have you, because the average sender would not be taking that risk. I mean, after all, you might put in £10, £100, £1,000, or half a million pounds, and go to the bank and say, I claim this money. But you know, we're going to read a passage of scripture just now, in which we read about our Lord Jesus giving a man the equivalent of a blank check. It's in Mark chapter 10, reading from verse 46. Then they came to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped, which in itself was quite remarkable because this was his last entry, really, his main entry to Jerusalem, as we read about it in the next chapter. But Jesus stopped on that momentous journey and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Already I'm sure you have spotted the blank check. It's there in verse 51, where our Lord Jesus speaks to this poor blind beggar who had been sitting at the roadside with not much going for him in this life. And he says to this man, Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And that, in my opinion, is a blank check. And that, I believe, is what the Lord Jesus wants to say to us this morning as we move on into the days of this new year into which the Lord has brought us. Let's pray. Father, we know that the plans you have for us are for good and not for evil. And we know that you call us to cooperate with you, that your perfect plans for our imperfect lives might be fully accomplished. And so we ask this morning in your Holy Spirit, will guide me as I speak and guide all of us as we seek to react and respond to this amazing invitation from our living Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So, what are we going to say in answer to this invitation of Jesus? What do you want me to do for you? It would be very interesting to go around the room and hear each one give some response, but that we will not do. Where could we turn to better than the Scriptures? To discover what the Bible tells us Jesus will do for people. And where better could we go than to the opening chapter of the New Testament? And there you see we read about Joseph who was pledged to be married to Mary. And word reached Joseph that Mary was pregnant. And poor Joseph misunderstood this completely and thought the worst. And decided to divorce his wife to be quietly and avoid as much fuss as possible. Ah, but then, he is visited in a dream by an angel of the Lord, saying to him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. What does the Bible tell us Jesus can be expected to do for people in this world? Number one, first of all, most important, he can be expected to save people from their sins. The Apostle John wrote in his first letter, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. You see, the most serious problem in the entire world is not the economy, as many would have us believe. It's not something political. It's not something international between conflict between nations. It's not these things. These are all secondary things. The primary problem in this world, as you know very well, is the problem of sin. The fact that every human being has this nasty thing in them, a bias towards evil, that causes endless problems and hurt and damage in life after life after life. And here is the Bible telling us that the Father sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world and the angel telling Joseph, this child will grow up and will one day save people from their sins. What is the ultimate result of sin? What is the most serious result of sin? Well, it certainly spoils relationships. But you see, the ultimate thing about sin is it separates. Isaiah the prophet was led to write, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have caused this damage. He cannot look upon you. His face is turned away from you. And the Apostle Paul says, The wages of sin is death. And death is all about separation. Physical death separates body from spirit. We're all spiritually dead until Jesus makes us alive. We're not just spiritually sick without Jesus, we're spiritually dead according to the Bible. Dead in trespasses and sins. And here is this great good news that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. And Peter writes that Christ has died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. To bring us to God. 
So the separation we experience by nature from God can be ended, totally ended, and we can know God, person to person, father to child, in the way he desires. Jesus said many wonderful, wonderful things, and one of the great things he said was this. He warned, the thief comes, that's Satan, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come, said Jesus, that people may have life, life, in all its fullness. I'll never forget visiting a woman in Govan whom I had come to know fairly well and she was suicidal and she would overdose and then she would phone me and I would go down to the house and she'd be saying, I just want to die, I just want to die, I just want to die. I said, no, no, Jean, no. Jesus says he came to give you life, life, life. And eventually that woman was gloriously converted and her conversion was the most dramatic conversion I've ever witnessed and I'll tell you about it someday. So, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. To do that, he had to die in our, our place, die on the cross, shed his blood, go through the agony of separation from his Father, that you and I might be saved. And that's why we're here this morning, because we've been saved from our sins, because God has given us new life in Jesus. Now, it may be, I don't know you very well yet, you folks, it just could be there's somebody here this morning who isn't yet saved. Perhaps not. But if there is, I would urge you to hear the voice of Jesus saying, what do you want me to do for you? And say, Lord, I just want to be saved from my sins. Just like that profligate girl in, in France who walked into that concert and said, it's that name, it's that name, Jesus. But sadly, though we are saved from our sins, all of us, tend to drift a bit from time to time. All of us become less than we should be spiritually for a variety of reasons. Now it's not too serious if it doesn't go too deep or last too long. And as long as we confess our sins, our Heavenly Father forgives us totally and instantly and it's all cleared and we're cleansed from all defilement. But other people backslide more seriously. Is there any hope for them? Of course there is. The prophet Hosea was led to write a long, long time ago, Return to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. And how do we go about returning to the Lord if we have backslidden? Maybe, maybe you have had a bad year last year. I don't know. I hope not. But maybe in the course of last year, you slipped a bit, you lost some ground spiritually, and you're aware you're not quite the Christian you were three or four years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago. And you hear the Lord saying, return to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. How do we go about doing it? Well, Hosea tells us, take words with you, take words with you, and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins. Receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. In other words, we may begin to praise you again and pray to you again. How does God respond to that? He says through Hosea, I will heal their waywardness, their backsliding, and love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. So if you have backslidden friends, don't give up praying for them. <laughs> Because the Lord can yet, with his mighty spiritual magnetism, 
draw them back. I understand that in certain African countries, two Christians may meet in the course of the day. Each knows the other is a Christian. But one will say to the other, Are you saved? Funny question to ask. What does he mean? Well, he really means, Are you being saved? In other words, is salvation working in your life today? Or have you just committed a sin and you don't want to tell me about it? Are you being saved? You see, the three tenses of the past tense. Our salvation goes back to the very first sin we ever committed and that's dealt with too. Our salvation goes on into the future. And at the end of the day we shall be saved by grace. The grace and mercy of God. But what about now? What about this week? What about next week? Are we experiencing salvation? Are we experiencing this great blessing in our life? Is it working for us in our homes, in our workplace? Are we living the lives of saved people? Maybe we have to ask the Lord to help us do that more completely. So, how do we respond to this invitation of Jesus? What do you want me to do for you? If we just move a couple of chapters on in Matthew's Gospel, we can find something else that Jesus is in the business of doing for people. Because now we're listening in as John the Baptist gets on with his preaching, calling people who thought they were all right with God to really get right with God, repent, and in token of their repentance, get baptized in the River Jordan. And as John was ministering there at the River Jordan, he said one day, After me, there is somebody else coming. I can baptize you. I'm baptizing you in water. But after me, there's somebody greater than I am is coming. And he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. In certain churches, they don't preach from this text. Because the whole concept of being baptized in the Spirit is something... They regard as being a bit risky. Oh, risky or no, it is biblical. It is there in the Word of God. What are we to make of it? He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. There are many Christians, if you remind them of this scripture, they say, Well, is it not true? But when I came to Jesus, when I repented of my sin and came to the Lord Jesus Christ, surrendered my whole life to him, accepted him as my Savior and Lord, is it not true that then at that moment in time, the Holy Spirit entered my life? It is true. It is true. Otherwise, we could never begin to live the Christian life if the Holy Spirit did not come into our life when we come to Jesus. What do I do first thing in the morning when I get up? One of the first things I do first thing in the morning is to make for the cold tap and drink cold water. More in the summer, less in the winter. It's too cold to drink too much in the winter. But that's the way I start my input for the day, with cold water. Where is that water now? It's no longer in the tap, no longer in the pipe. Where is it? It's in my body. Is it visible? No. Is it active? Yes. It's doing what water's supposed to do in my body. I don't ask you what that is. 
But then summer comes and it's warm and it's really very hot one day. And I happen to live near a river which is fairly deep in places. And I say to him, you know what, I'm going to have a swim today. And I go down to the river and I wade into the water up to my waist or beyond it and I start swimming, I start floating in my back and there's no more relaxing position in the whole world than floating in your back in the water looking up to the sky. I commend it to you. What's happening now? H2O again, yes. I drank H2O in the morning from the glass, taking from the tap. Now I'm swimming in the stuff. But what's the difference? Well, the difference is principally, obviously, one of volume. In the morning I took a pint of water, or thereabouts, into my body. But now I'm in the midst of gallons and gallons and litres and gallons of the stuff. And the water I took into my body... It's at work in my body, I couldn't live without it. But wherever I go, it has to go too. I decide, I carry the water. But now in the depth of the river or in the sea, which is even better, the water is not inside my body unless I happen to open my mouth at the wrong time. The water is all around me. And wonder of wonders, the water is supporting my weight. Even the heaviest of people can float, you know. Amazing. The water is supporting my weight and it's carrying me this way and that way. And to some extent I can control what's happening. But if I come anywhere near one of these massive waves that occasionally breaks on our shores, I will not be deciding where I'm going. The water will decide that for me. Can you see what I'm getting at? An illustration to help us understand why it's not really good enough that we should almost write off this verse of scripture and say, well, I I don't just fancy this idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. When you were baptized in water, if you have been, did you experience anything? Yes, of course you did. Apart from any spiritual experience you had in the process of being baptized, and you ought to have had that, you went in dry and you came out wet. You experienced this water because you were immersed in the stuff, briefly. So what does that say to us? Does it not say that God wants us to have maximum power for living the Christian life, not minimum power, We can get along reasonably well on minimum power, but better on maximum power. And I find it remarkable that the great statement of John the Baptist, which is the basis of the gospel, the day John the Baptist was with some of his disciples and he saw Jesus and he pointed out to Jesus and he said, that's him, look at him, look, there he is, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know how many times that's recorded in scripture? Once. By John in the fourth gospel. John the Baptist is there at the Jordan and he says after me there's somebody bigger, more important, more wonderful than I am coming. I can baptize you in water but he can baptize you and will baptize people in the Holy Spirit and in fire. You know how often that's recorded? Four times. The Holy Spirit has seen to it that all four gospel writers recorded that word of Jesus, the word of John the Baptist, 
about Jesus baptizing people in the Holy Spirit. And of course our Lord Jesus himself used precisely the same language. Days before he ascended into heaven, as Acts 1 tells us, he was with some of his disciples and he said, before many days you are going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and you're going to receive power. And they did. The day of Pentecost came, the Spirit of God was poured upon these rather bewildered, frightened believers and they took off spiritually and there was no stopping them. And the gospel spread, spread, spread throughout that part of the ancient world and beyond. So, we see the first group of people to be baptized in the Spirit were these Jewish people on the day of Pentecost. Then we come to the Samaritan people in Acts chapter 8. And then we go to Acts chapter 10. And we have the meeting in the home of Cornelius. One of those wonderful occasions when the preacher had to shut up. Never happened to me yet, I'm afraid. But here is Peter preaching the gospel in a house meeting, a big house meeting, a Roman soldier's home. And all of a sudden the Spirit of God falls upon that meeting. And Peter has to stop preaching. And Peter says, now, the next thing for you folks is to get baptized in water. And they did. The Acts 8 one were Samaritans. Philip has been conducting a mission in Samaria. And a number of people have become Christians and they've been baptized in water. And then down from Jerusalem come Peter and John and meet these new believers. And immediately sense that they have not yet been immersed in the Holy Spirit. So they proceed to lay hands on them and pray for them one by one. And they're all immersed in the Holy Spirit. Seems to me that an unbiased reading of the New Testament should convince a person that all these first Christians in the New Testament times they were all baptized in the Holy Spirit. I believe they were. And Hebrew speaks about baptisms, plural. So if there's an S in the end, there must be more than one baptism. One in water, one in the Holy Spirit. Then, of course, if we had time, not do it today, but if we had time, we could look into 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we could read about the gifts of the Spirit, which people seem to experience only after being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Gifts like prophecy, words of knowledge, words of wisdom. Some people regard these gifts as if they were toys. They are not toys. They are tools. Jesus gave words of knowledge. Woman at the well. He told her to go and fetch her husband. He read her life like a book. That was a word of knowledge. Supernaturally, Jesus knew what was going on in her life. It's a word of knowledge. Word of wisdom. Here's a group of Christians about to take some important decision. They've almost decided it's, this is what we should do, this way, not that way, this way. And then somebody gets a word of wisdom from the Lord. The Holy Spirit whispers into this person's ear. And this person speaks out what this person has heard. And the people are amazed. Oh, we almost went down that road and if we'd gone down that road it would have been disastrous. This is the way we need to go.
That's a word of wisdom. That's not a toy. It's a very useful tool. One of the scariest things I've ever experienced was I was having a meal in the house of an art lover in the Villa Houston Park with my wife. And I couldn't help noticing a couple who came in sitting at a table further over and you could tell just by glancing at them that they were not getting on too well. Uh, their relationship was not terribly happy that day. And um, Horror of horrors. The Lord suddenly gave me a word for that couple. Mm. In a restaurant. <laughs> not in a church service. In a restaurant. <laughs> Go and speak to them. Well, I chose my moment when they had finished their meal and the husband went to the toilet and I followed the woman up to where you paid the bill. And I said, excuse me, but I believe God wants to say something to you. And I passed on the message to her and I said, if that makes any sense to you, I suggest you act upon it. God bless you. Never happened again, but uh, you see, when God does these kind of things, he's sometimes just testing us to see if we'll do it. Hmm. Well, more than 40 years ago, one year when we were on holiday, my wife was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And after we came home and back to work again, one day Moira said to me, Do you think I really am baptized in the Holy Spirit? I said, I know you are. She said, How do you know it? Well, I said, before you had this experience, you were very fond of the Word of God, you read the Word of God every day, but now you devour it. You hardly ever put your Bible down. And always delving into the Word of God, a great hunger for the Word of God. And I said, and what's more, not infrequently you tell me, I'm going into town, I'm going to get some, do some shopping. And you come back with no shopping. What have you been doing, Moira? Oh, well, I was prayer walking. I was, I, was, I was walking around the streets of Glasgow and I was worshipping the Lord and I was prayer walking. I said, hallelujah. The bank balance is safe, you know. He was stop, <laughs> stop shopping. Give up the prayer walking, will you? So, you see, the fact of the matter is, I can speak from experience because the following year I was baptized in the Spirit. Not particularly dramatic experience. And yet, yet, yet it opened the door to an enrichment in my own life, in my ministry. My theology had to be adjusted because I was one of these foolish people who thought the gifts of the Spirit were all withdrawn when the New Testament was completed. What rubbish! What nonsense! Absolute nonsense! So, Paul sums it all up very neatly when he says in Galatians 5.16, Live by the Spirit talking about the Holy Spirit, live by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of your sinful nature. A prescription for victory, for freedom. And of course, my experience, Moira's experience, brought us a new freedom in worship. Worship was a far more, a richer experience. Prayer, freedom in prayer, freedom in witness. Oh yes. So I encourage you to consider if you haven't yet had an experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus who does it. I could baptize you in water, but I can't baptize you in the Spirit. Only Jesus can do that. And the great British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's preaching and teaching in books of influence on vast number of people, and still do, Many years ago in one of his books, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, The greatest need of the British church at this time 
is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. He was right. In every generation. One of this is the greatest or one of the greatest needs of the church. Obviously to be true to scripture in our preaching and teaching and witness etc. But also not to try and do in our own strength or our own wisdom what God intends us to do in his strength and his wisdom which comes by the Holy Spirit. Of course every Christian has the Holy Spirit in his or her life. But to have that plus living in the whole atmosphere of the Holy Spirit, being as it were enveloped in the Holy Spirit. And by the way, in the New Testament, I can't remember the percentage, but probably near the 50% of the times when the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the Greek of the original writing. The word the, T-H-E, is missing. It sounds not right in English. Baptized in Holy Spirit sounds not quite right. But that's actually what's written. And it has been suggested, and I think very wisely, that where the, the article, what we call the different article, the word the, is included, the emphasis in these scriptures is on the fact of the Holy Spirit as a person, and He is a person. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. But where the word thee is omitted, it may be to put the reference or the emphasis on the fact that this person is all-powerful. It is the power of the Spirit that is being emphasized. What do you want me to do for you, says Jesus? Lord, would you baptize me in the Holy Spirit? It may not happen instantly. It may come later. But it's worth having, believe me. He will save his people from their sins. He'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit. What else? Something that I think is undervalued and not given the importance that it should give among Christians generally. That is protection. Protection. Think of these poor people who have been flooded out of their homes and they couldn't afford insurance. They have no protection whatsoever in the face of that terrible loss and damage. Protection, spiritual protection, is very, very important. These words I've given you so far are straight from Scripture. He will save his people from their sins. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. And this third one is also straight from Scripture. From 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, where Paul writes, The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Do we need protection from the evil one? Yes, we do. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, Your adversary, your enemy, your serious number one enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. Resist him. But we also have in the Gospels two verses which clearly indicate not only our need for protection but the fact that we ought to ask for it and not assume that God will give it to us automatically. We listen in and we're privileged to listen in. If we read John chapter 17 we're on holy ground. We're listening to our Lord Jesus at prayer. 
First he prays for himself. He's certainly going to die on the cross and leave disciples behind in the world. And he prays for these disciples. And in his prayer for his disciples, he prays, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I'm asking you to protect them from the evil one. If the Father was going to do it automatically, why would Jesus bother to ask for it? But then again, in teaching us when we call the Lord's Prayer, the family prayer, the pattern prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus didn't only teach us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, your kingdom come. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. He taught us also to pray, deliver us from the evil one. And the evil one is the better translation. The old King James translation was a bit weak. Deliver us from evil. No. It should be deliver us from this evil person who hates us and hates Jesus. Deliver us from the evil one. I want to encourage you, if you're not already in the habit of doing it, to pray for spiritual protection for yourself and for those who are most vulnerable within your family or among your friends. I sometimes think that the sadness many Christian parents and grandparents experience in seeing their children or grandchildren either never having come to the Lord or having come to the Lord and then drifted away, maybe it wouldn't be that way if those parents and grandparents had prayed protection on their precious offspring he will protect you from the evil one I'll take point four if you don't mind point four and the apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter four my God will meet all your needs and if that doesn't tempt you I don't know what will Jesus is saying this morning, what do you want me to do for you? Oh Lord, would you please meet all my needs? Your word says you will meet all our needs. Will you meet all my needs? And the Lord says, I would love to do that. But you know what? To experience that, you will have to cooperate with me. Because the Bible teaches, you see, that it's in giving that we receive. This is not some wild American prosperity teaching. This is pure biblical teaching. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6, Do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more important than food in the body, more important than clothes. A little later he says this again in a different way. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Pagans, unbelievers, run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Make that a priority. Seeking his kingdom. Desiring his kingdom power to be at work in your life, in your home, in your family, in your workplace. That's what the kingdom of God is all about, you know. 
It's the kingdom power of God breaking into situations and changing them. Making them the way God wants them to be. But then there's another wonderful promise which comes with a challenge. In Luke chapter 6, our Lord Jesus says this. He says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. But with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I maybe told you already in one of my previous visits that I proved the Lord true on that point last year. You see, if the Lord tells you to give a five-pound note to somebody or 20 pounds or 50 pounds, no big deal really in today's money value, is it? Not really. But if the Lord says to you clearly, uh, uh, by the way, you know the needs of these, these people down the street or around the corner where they are, um, they're pretty massive actually it'll take £3,000 to meet that need but I want you to meet that need what do you do? you say oh Lord please, please, please no, come on I could, I mean I've got £3,000 but there's so many other things I might need to pay for I honestly can't do that well your choice but you see, when we actually take God at his word, and when God tells us clearly to do something, it may be very demanding. If we don't do it, we lose. And when we take God at his word and do what he has asked us to do with our money, God is faithful. Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. A full measure. Not half measure, full measure. Pour into your lap. And that brings us to our last scripture for the day. This one that is, again, very often not preached on, not taught in many churches. Partly because it's so demanding. It seems so demanding. But the demand, you see, is more than matched by the promise that comes with it. The very last book of the Old Testament, the prophecy of Malachi. Malachi is led to write, Will a man rob God? Yet God says, You are robbing me. But you ask, How do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. Here's some strong language for you. You're under a curse. The whole nation of you. Because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe, the whole tenth, into the storehouse, the local church. There will be food in my house. And then comes this amazing invitation. Amazing invitation. Test me in this, says the Lord of hosts. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. And I am so grateful to God that in the little Baptist church in Wisconsin when I surrendered to Jesus in 1956, there was a tract lying there which said, let's stop tipping God. And I picked it up and read it. And the pastor of that church used to say you could begin with any verse in scripture and end up preaching on tithing. <laughs> yes, it sounds funny but it's very serious. Because you see, God doesn't say would you consider giving me as much as one-tenth of your income? 
God actually says, I require you to hand over to me one-tenth of your income. And you'll get a big surprise. You'll discover that you can live on the other nine-tenths. And says God, if you do that, if you're prepared to do that, I'll open the floodgates, the windows of heaven, and I'll pour out so much blessing, you will have difficulty in handling it. What Scotsman could refuse an invitation like that? Hmm? And I thank God that from that day in 1956, with maybe an odd blip here and there, down through the years, I have sought to be faithful to that command of God. And when I teach this, I upset people even more by saying, well, don't forget, when you're giving a tenth of your income to God, make sure it's the tenth of the gross, not the net, after the taxman's had his bit. But God says, you do it. You do what I'm telling you to do. And I'll do what I promise to do. When I got married, my wife and I got married, we took my wife's father to make his home with us. He was a widower. The grandpa spent the last seven years of his life in our home. And he had a pension, of course, that helped to contribute to the cost of running the house and paying the bills and so on. He was taken home in December 19... getting mixed up in the dates, in 1967. And the very same month in which he was taken home to glory and his pension ceased and his contribution to our housekeeping ceased. The very same month I received my first cheque as a part-time chaplain in the Sutherland General Hospital. I was deeply moved. I said, Father, you've done it again. Perfect timing. One door closes, another opens. And you continue to supply all my needs. I don't know what God has been saying to you this morning, but you respond as you believe he would want you to respond to that invitation of Jesus. Many years ago there was an evangelistic crusade of some sort happening in some town somewhere. And one young man, a Christian, went into a pub to speak to the guys who were drinking there and tell them about Jesus. And he walked up to this, this fellow who was drinking at the bar and he said, if Jesus Christ were coming in here today, what do you think he would ask you to give him? And the guy with a glass in his hand looked at him and says, if Jesus Christ walked in here today, he wouldn't ask me to give him anything. He would want to give me something. Oh, the evangelist was put in his place. He would want to give me something. And listen, he wants to give you and me something today. Recently, as I've been pondering this invitation of Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? I found myself standing in my kitchen and raising my arms to heaven and saying, Father, I want to catch more fish for you. And I've ever caught in my life up till now. Oh, what a wonderful thing to be able to reach a multitude for our Saviour. He will save his people from their sins. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. He will protect you from the evil one. 
and he will meet all your needs. Let's pray.